0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of a member of the band Direct Hits. Yes, it is going to be the one and only Colin Swan, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about Life, Love, and Poetry, and just to say that they have a, a new release that's coming out very soon. I think 14th of February 2021. Check it out. It's called the Broadway um, Recording Sessions, a piece of mod history. Indeed it is. This is going to be coming out on uh, Optic Nerve Record. Now the uh, the band. Yes, they were a bit of a mod band, but you'll sort of find out more about that. During the interview, um, and... Uh, After several minutes of casual chat, or certainly chat anyway, um, we got down to the exciting subject that was the sort of the 80s musical scene. And uh, this was Colin's response to that. Anyway, Colin, it's over to you.
1: We kind of, um, uh, I think the reason that we, we we had a kind of foot in both camps, because up until uh, the Wham! Association, when we did the first single, we were out and out, um, you know, a mod band. But it didn't really. We didn't really fit into that category that well either, because we came from South London for a start, which nobody came from South London then. I mean, now it's it's, it's the place to come from for music, and ever since they put the uh, the British School in Croydon, um, you know, lots of people have come from South London. But at that time, um, mainly the bands were North London, East London, and you know, that's why we um, we were kind of on the fringes of it a little bit. Yeah, and I suppose really starting didn't get a record out until '82, by which time the mod revival was kind of on its second phase, which is more sort of underground. Yeah, I suppose. Did Quite you? That stage, right?
0: So did you have that? Yes, because look, I'm I'm sort of you know I was born '64. My my, you know, I'm now in my mid-fifties, and um, you know, my formative years were that kind of early '70s. I suppose more than anything. I mean, what was your yeah. kind of? moment where you know music started to become the obsession in life that you started thinking oh. well I
1: kind of um I kind of had a I was always a massive Beatles fan 10 years too late really I think when I was at school it was all um uh, T-Rex Slade and then it was unfashionable then to, to like the Beatles you know but um I kind of um I kind of championed them a bit with my schoolmates and stuff And then the guitarist, Gino, he um, he was, um, uh, we was at school, we never really knew each other much, but he was a massive T-Rex fan. And then David Bowie, and I think that Starman thing, you know, when it was on top of the pops, everybody kind of converted to that. So that's where we kind of, at school, we kind of met up with that. So um, I started thinking about having a band then, you know, being in a band even then. So uh, kind of kept it going, really. And then we started this, um, we got into the power pop thing, and then we had this band, The Exits, and we had two other, we had a keyboard player and a drummer, um, and Gino and myself, and we we made one record for Lightning, which, uh, The Fashion Plague, which is quite sought after now. Yeah. And then um, that didn't go anywhere much, and then we did that uh, album that never got released. I think, is that the one you, do you know that one? This is... one.
0: I can't. I don't know. Actually, I can't remember. I can't remember.
1: Jerry Bensel, Jerry Red. Oh, uh, right! The legendary Lost Exits album. But, um, <laughs> they did all right actually. They did all right because that had never been released. So, um, and then you know a couple of years later, we kind of formed direct, direct hits, and then we somehow got involved with Dan Tracy, and he um, he was a uh, quite a big fan, even though the TVPs generally, the rest of the band, um, when that struck. You know, we were just sort of different. They were more kind of arty, art school, whereas we were more mod. You know. Yes, it so kind that, of that, that was a strange meeting, really.
0: It was a very strange meeting because I did an interview with a guy yeah. who was in his. Um, well, that was there was two bands I've done. There was the the One Thousand Violins who came from Sheffield and stayed with Dan, and then there was another band oh, called yeah, yeah, called um, God. What are they called? Oh, yes, the Hangman's Beautiful. Daughters, and they, yeah. but they were much later in the eighties. But I don't know; it might not be that that much later. But they were all part of da- a little bit of to do with Dan. But I know the one thousand violins seemed to stay at Dan's house and would often conduct meetings behind a closed door. Yeah, but-
1: yeah, we we used to see them. Yeah, we used to see uh, various sort of uh, bands hanging around at Dan's place when he was in Clapham we had the pointers called flat where he kind of run the wham empire from and uh we would go around there Gene and myself and we would listen to he would either play his various stuff you know he had piles of cassettes that um singers and bands had sent him but um i think because we we were more keen on writing songs um we were sort of uh that's how we got involved with dan really because he he was involved with um kyle solomon the twist and shout and then went on to it was virtually event the psychedelic revival so we got involved through him and um and that was when dan offered us a uh, single deal so we did that and then yeah we did used to go around there quite a lot and um we used to help him paint his covers his album covers <laughs> and then we would go around ed ball's house and do the same thing with, um with his uh, sort of handmade kind of record label yeah, it was great at that time, you know. At the time, it just seemed like a label going nowhere, it never had any finances. Yeah. But um, now, looking back on it, of course, you know, all that stuff is is considered. Uh, it was pretty much do it yourself. And then we had a, a fan, we had a fan club formed, and then um, we had a girl who ran it, and then we did direct hits monthly, and that ran for six years. So that was uh, yeah, it was quite a big thing for us because obviously that was the only form of communication between us and fans. Yes. But the minute Dan came along, it, everything improved really. Fantastic. Um, that's
0: how
1: we in the touring, you know, through the Wham connection. Oh, yeah. well, a lot better than up and down, you
0: know, the UK. Right, so, Cause, yeah, so at that stage, had Dan also got past members like Joe? Was it Joe Foster and Ed Ball as well? Were Were they all part of that scene that you were talking about? Yeah,
1: yeah, they were, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing, the nearest thing got to it really was we um, we went to Five uh, Sultans, obviously twisted this out one day, and he was playing this Mood Six and um, stuff. I don't know if you know about that slightly like revival thing, but that that looked like the nearest thing anyone was going to get from the people that we knew because they'd been on, um, I think they'd been on the TV on a six clock news program, <laughs> and then they had the groovy movie out, which went round the cinemas, and that was Mood Six. The riverboat trip and the times, and um, you know, that the like it was going to happen, really.
0: Yes, absolutely they got
1: signed by AMI and, but it didn't, it didn't happen.
0: <laughs> I think of, it was kind
1: of over in the, I think it was over in about the summer of 1980, 81. I think that was about it.
0: Yes, and it actually, right, seemed,
1: really. also good bands. well,
0: absolutely, and 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 all those bands that you just mentioned—they all seem to have, re, re, you know, surfaced again. They might have in the first place, on Cherry Red Records, yeah. didn't they? They—they they seem to be the ones who. This is kind of where I keep thinking, "Oh yes, I've seen that compilation. or I've had that compilation because it's Cherry Red seems to have kind of got most of those kind of reissues. If not, I don't know. If they yeah, yeah, they did.
1: Yeah, and um, they, they contact, contacted us and. Um, because we've been um, we've been also running this tapes label direct tapes we've been doing that for years since early eighties really because our main thing was to um, we had a song plugger so we wrote songs for the, uh, that twist and shout kind of house in house and their job was to try and sell them I think the nearest we got to it was uh, ever ready plaything with uh, ever ready batteries we nearly pulled that one off but um, I think they rejected it in the end so. That was the nearest we ever got to cracking it, <laughs> but yeah, it's good fun because we used to write for, you know, lots of people. Yeah, kind of had this stoller in-house thing, but I think that was what Dan and you know the WAM label liked liked about us because we we tried to craft pop songs as it were. Yeah, but um, we used to play at the uh, you know the fire station gigs. There was um, there was on the old camp road. There was this venue, the fire station, and I think it was called the. The room at the top or something.
0: Oh, was that Alan McGee's club?
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, Alan McGee—he—he um, was—he was always at um, those TVP gigs. You know, you'd regularly see him, and he had that laughing apple thing. So Th-
0: that's right.
1: His band
0: and Biff Bang something.
1: Yeah, and he—he um, he actually, yeah. I mean, I'd had uh, a few conversations with him at the time, and uh, I remember once uh, he said to me he didn't like the the band as such he, he thought it was too sort of uh who kind of orientated and a bit um you know not quite what the songs were so he, he i'm sure that we had a long conversation about that and he actually offered me uh he said i like your songs but i don't like your band So i think he <laughs> he may have said to me do you want to make some solo recordings or you know he was he was um really low-key bloke really yes. didn't pop up at gigs but he stayed mainly at the back, really. Yeah, but I should have signed
0: him up on it, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose at the time it was kind of interesting because that was kind of eighty three, eighty four time, I would imagine. Yeah. When when the room at the top and there's also creation started and there were bands like Jasmine Minks and yeah. lots of indie bands and it, and you know and I I remember sort of seeing the band you know who they had signed were people like you know Momus and Jesus yeah. and the Mary Chain and as you said you know they were very indie. And then, obviously, it was kind of Oasis in well, a decade later that sort of, um, obviously, yeah. things kind of completely changed. But it's interesting in the sense that I always remember that thing about Malcolm Gladwell, who said, but there's 10,000 hours you have to do before you kind of create your work of genius. And I suppose all that time of being both in a band, doing venue, you know, doing a club night, and then all these other indie bands. So it probably just broke even. I have no idea, actually. But, <laughs>
1: but you know, it's yeah, like... No, it, I mean, no, it, it was the, um, I think it was pretty much the feeling of it. And uh, the fact that we, um, like I said, because we had a kind of foot in both camps, um, our audience was, was split. But at least it was an audience. You know, I mean, um, we uh, we used to play the 101 Club at Clapham, which is, uh, there's quite a few bands played there, actually. We went on to do bigger things. But um, they, they were the days when um, gigs like Grey Full Fuller Palace Road, um, you know, you would play on a Monday and Tuesday, or you'd go up. We would go up north to do um, mod clubs, and that, you know the great thing about that was, which you'd never see now, is midweek gigs. You know, Monday night people would go to gigs, and the great shame of it is, you know, all that since disappeared. You know, from the Clarendon Ballroom on a Hammersmith on a Wednesday night. You know, you think well, even two years ago, five years ago, it would have been a ghost town. But you know, people did people did go out all the time then. Yeah, You know, it was something you took for granted. But I guess that there was a lot less entertainment at home. And, um, uh, you know, maybe driving a scooter and having a drink, that wasn't such a criminal offence then. it I mean, like... now, you know, stuff you wouldn't dream of. You know? no. I'm... Uh, yes, I remember. It's a real shame that's gone.
0: I remember having a 50cc Yamaha moped and you just think, as long as you don't have, you know, three pints is okay, four yeah. pints is a bit silly. But, you know, you didn't you didn't really, you know, by five points, you think, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I've only got to go five miles home. You know, the the, yeah, worst yeah, I could, it, yeah. the worst I could do is kill myself, but I won't hurt anybody else on my 50cc moped. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: I mean, um, yeah, I even think that maybe the maybe the police would keep you around the year then.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know. But there was, you know, it would be late but at I mean,
1: night. The, but, I mean that whole kind of handmade thing about the CBPs, you know. Uh, we thought that was great because, um, you know, it, it was it just meant that everything you did. And I think that's why it's come back in quite a big way because there is so much saturation stuff now. But I think why it's come back and that these old mod records have, have still got a huge following. It's obviously now mainly nostalgia. But um, I didn't even realise that we we had um, we'd made you know, a fair impact on a small movement of people. Because, obviously, with no communication like we've got now, I had no idea that we'd uh, we'd sold records in obscure places, or um, <laughs> there were so many people who'd come and see us, you know? Um, because you we had a van that was pretty beat up, and, you know, you'd make it up to Rotherham or wherever you were playing on a Tuesday, and you would do the gig, and there was very little time to get there, not even talk to the support band or whatever, and then you'd go back back home straight away because you'd go be to work the next day. So it, we missed all that, talking to people, um, which now since, you know, we, we've had um, so many, you know, it's, it's a bigger market now.
0: Yeah, well, Much I think... Bigger. Well, it's going to be interesting because there's quite a few things I've learned from doing this show is that with... Most bands now have a... Fi- you know, I find have a five-year narrative quite to the day, you know, they get together, they have that honeymoon period... In those days, which we're talking, you know, there would be like a potential John Peel play. That would mean, well, hey, that's brilliant. And then a John Peel session, the first album. So, so far, so good. But also, as you said... Every city and every town had a little club night, didn't they? An indie club night. Yeah. And, and, you know, mostly these were on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, because that's when nobody else wanted the venue. So they'd go, yeah, you can put an indie night on. But, you know, because it got, you know, possibly in the NME, which had a circulation of 100,000 and same with melody making sounds and a John Peel play, you would probably get 150 slightly, you know, kids like myself who would just turn up for £2.50 to see three bands. yeah. So you kind of, you know... it was quite an organic process, which, you know, and then you had the fanzines and then all that. But, you know, I know that sounds a bit rose-tinted sunglasses, but actually that was what happened, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. And um, the other thing was that some of the kids who promoted these gigs, I mean, there was the odd occasion where we go, you know, what seemed miles to us. Cause, I mean, anywhere past the Watford Gap to us was, you know, the back of beyond. I mean, the funny thing is I live pretty far north now, just on the, um, you know, the borders of Scotland. But I... I know. I mean, like most Londoners, really, I suppose they have a lot less knowledge of anywhere. I mean, most people think that you know Manchester, and Liverpool, it ends there. But to me, that's south now. <laughs> but you know, going there, I mean, we used to go to these places like uh, like Rotherham, You know, anywhere in South Yorkshire, we would go up to do those gigs, and they just seem to take weeks to get there. You know, yes. do we only have a van, that did possibly forty miles an hour, but um, but the amount of people who, who um, who knew us uh, then? Well, like i say we, we missed a lot of it because you couldn't... You didn't, there was no time to... You had to get back, so there was no time to um, talk to anyone, really. Yeah. Some of the kids who promoted those gigs were maybe 16, 17, and then sometimes you'd get there and the police would turn up because there'd been no proper application, you know, which is tenfold now to what it was then. But, you know, there was no uh, alcohol licence. There was nothing done properly. So sometimes you'd get there and go straight home because... That's the way it was. <laughs> but they, you know, they had a go at it. They they, they tried to, um, but I mean, you know, that was the only thing that, that I didn't like so much about being on that mod thing because it was all, all over the place. Apart from the um, scooter runs and stuff, they were great. Sometimes we do those all nighters. Yes, and uh, it was fantastic. It was really like quadrophenia. You know, it was a real proper scene. There was. They had great clubs that played great music. You know, actually, I used to hate going on after that because after they had a really good night, there was lots of soul, and Motown. And I used to think when the bands went on, it kind of brought it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it was yeah. great to watch that. You know, Those yes, before you know,
0: brilliant. Absolutely, because it's interesting because yeah,
1: you know, all for granted at the time. Because
0: I remember, I mean, obviously there was. You know, the late seventies. There was the two-tone kind of explosion, and obviously, seeing people yeah. like the the Beat and Mirror in the bathroom was like one of those kind of moments. And everything was quite tribal because yeah. where we, you know, come from in East Anglia, you know, you, you know, there was like status quo with the band that you didn't say anything against because you would get beaten up. But and even if you you didn't want <laughs> to admit that you liked the Beat because you would have also been beaten up for being a mod. So. You know, it was really strange. But then, did that? And I remember sort of coming, you know, thinking, "Oh, the beat are good, but I mustn't like them because they're two tone." And they, <laughs> for some reason, but yeah. you know, you secretly well, I mean, did.
1: Uh, I would uh, sympathise with you over that because um, my uh, my mum and dad actually ended up. Although they were born and bred Londoners, they ended up in uh, in Suffolk, living in Suffolk. So yeah, oh, I nice. you know, so used to go down there before they moved there. We used to go down there as kids, you know. So I know quite a lot about East Anglia. I used to think. I mean, Barry St. you know, apart from Andy's records, I think, which is in the town. Yes. Um, I think it was like, it really was maybe 15 years behind <laughs> what everything else. I think when I first went there, there wasn't even, there was no, I don't remember any lighting. Yeah, this it is true. It was pitch black all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so what part is the uh, name that was...
0: You well, well i came from the the border between suffolk and norfolk in a village so it was really you know oh, yeah. you know seeing street lighting was quite kind of like a novelty but also seeing yeah. cats eyes in a in a high you know in a motorway would, would be kind of like a tourist attraction for people like me you think well, look at that that's kind yeah. Of, yeah, that's yeah, kind not? of that's I kind of magical that. you know yeah.
1: <laughs> so I mean, um, uh, i've got a bit of a sort of a theory about that i think that if you look at the left hand side of the country compared to the right-hand side. And actually, my missus, um, she she comes from here. That's why we ended up back up north. But she said to me, if you look down the country, you know, you've got uh, Liverpool and Manchester and the left, the left side of the country, which looks out, um, you know, like towards um, America and stuff. And on the other side of the country, there's nothing, it's quite flat as well. So there's nothing to look at. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that about, I mean, I used to love Yarmouth. I mean, that's that's kind of uh, up there. And I used to think that was near Blackpool, but if you get... And I thought that was a great town, you know. But Suffolk and Norfolk, yeah, I think even the crossing between Suffolk and Norfolk is quite um you know, it's quite it becomes more sort of rural, doesn't it?
0: Very. It's very now, rural.
1: It's more at market, I think. But
0: Things have slightly changed, but it was yeah. very, I mean, luckily, I mean, we don't really, I mean, just going off slightly tangent, we didn't really have much, I didn't think much of a music scene in many bands, but there were a few venues, which was quite a relief. And it, if it wasn't for the, you know, university in Norwich, the UBA, I think it would be, you know, quite a... Um, a bleak place, it kind of gives it that energy of all these kind of new people coming in and having that kind of yeah, excitement there
1: were, some, there were some mod bands as well from there I think that were um, you know to be fair to that part of the country I may have, sent, may have damned it a little bit but yeah there were some good um, I think the moment possibly that they were kind of like around the same time with us but when we stepped out of that thing, that, that mod thing we went into the, um, I think the first gig we did with a TVP's and possibly Doctor to the medics was the um, Strand, I think, a place called the Coal Hole? I mean, all I remember about that gig is that that was a, that was where Dan started spraying the uh, the backdrop with aerosol cans. and I remember the management went balmy. They just because um, you know it was quite it was quite um, unusual to see that sort of stuff.
0: Yes, he had this kind of
1: white backdrop up, but it was going all over the all over the wall, the bag. <laughs> so uh, I think that finished that gig. Pretty much, um, <laughs> but yeah, he was great like that. Dan he used to he would call controversy really, and he was really good at that because he actually was a, a really good musician. But I think sometimes um, if we supported them, I used to think he used to play that down. Um, so his guitar was out of tune quite a lot, and I said to him, well, Dan, you know you have to tune up." I said, "You know the, your songs are really quite great little songs, you know." I think that was a, a kind of a thing. It's like he's um, the merry chain, isn't it? Some of it was—it's uh, more show than music, certainly in the beginning.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Uh, We—we—the um, only thing I couldn't get with that with Danny—he was writing great little songs, but he would purposely um, be not that great, you know. But of... he did get a, a, a huge following.
0: Well, I know he, he has. And um, they have still got quite, I mean, I'm amazed no one's made a documentary about Dan, really, because he does kind of come up, you know. I mean, I think the, well, the interesting thing about doing this period is that, you know, like you've got the 60s, that's been well covered, the 70s, that's pretty covered. And then sort of like we all know what happened in Britpop and the 90s, and then that's all well covered. But the 80s, you know, you've got the mainstream charts and then you dig down in this kind of pit of indie, and I think it's kind of it all happened and then everyone moves on because you need to get a job and, or need to get money and probably. So a lot of the music yeah. kind, of, kind of got left and it's like, OK, let's just move on. And now 30 years later, people have come back, like I suppose myself, and, and started digging down. And, and I've come across bands I missed the first time thinking, God, this is, this is much better than I remember. Or, you know, yeah. actually, I, I, I don't know why I miss this band. Well, I do because actually you couldn't always, you might read about a band, but you don't necessarily going to ever hear an album or even buy the album. If you wanted to, and buying an album was quite a big thing as well. Let's face it, it was three ninety nine yeah. or four ninety nine. Yeah, so it's kind yeah, of I interesting think, uh... that that you look back and people like Optic Nerve and various other ones. There's a there's a uh, fire station in. Germany another little record label and one in New York who've also been unearthing all these kind of um Cloudbury records that's the other yeah. one I mean they've been unearthing these bands from the 80s that everyone went well we just did a few singles a few flexi discs and they've gone oh, you, yeah. you, you've got 20 songs we'll put a compilation out and you're thinking oh god actually they're really interesting you know so it's in you know yeah
1: that's why right. it's led to digging um everything out from uh reel to reels you know which is why I am. Um I had this recording for some time, and um, because they were pre-recordings um, of the songs that we did later on in that first album proper, that they, um, they sounded quite good to me, because <clears throat> as with any set list, I think, when you come to record it, maybe if it's two years old, there's not as much verve and enthusiasm for the songs, maybe. Um, so this, this set of recordings is pretty much what we were playing and writing at the time, so you know, it sounds good to me. It sounds um, like we were very keen to put it over, you know. We were deadly serious. And the thing is, there was no, there was any market for it, really. (coughs) There was no market for it as such. It was pretty tough to get at that period. You couldn't get out into the mainstream. You know, it took 10 years before Oasis. And funny enough, you know, Alan McGee must have soaked up all that stuff before signing Oasis, or recognising it was time for guitar bands to make it, because there wasn't any market for it. Yes. We were pretty much on our own. So we created our own kind of little scene, really, but it was pretty little. Yeah, well,
0: although was,
1: not as little as I thought.
0: Yeah, well, it's um, it's got longevity. But interesting, because I've sort of realised indie pop, this is my theory, has got five, you know, it's a real five year period in the 80s, between 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths. And then they split up, and then ecstasy came along, and then suddenly that whole movement was about dancing, and then yeah. grunge came along, and it was like, okay. Yeah. You know we need grunge, and then Britpop sort of crept up, and I mean, you know, yeah. that's that's quite simplistic. And there's also shoe gazing and stuff. But then, you know, I think it, you know, then so so Britpop happened. So I think that eighties period there was a real indie scene, but then as with every scene, it kind of does kind of dwindle quite quickly, doesn't it? As well, it doesn't last for very long. And you and your your sound. There was another band called the Dentists, I believe, who were a bit sort of a psychedelic pop sound, weren't they, as well, which I think were from Yeah. From sort of Kent area. Yeah, I mean
1: there was um yeah, there were certain um things that were slightly we were slightly linked with, like the prisoners, for example. They were more <clears throat> harder edge than us. It was more R and B. Whereas you know, we were trying to write pop songs really. We were trying to cross into a mainstream by writing pop songs, but we didn't really um we didn't really get out of that box.
0: <laughs> yes. I've
1: got a frog in the photo. Yeah. Now, um, we did try, you know, to break with songwriting. We tried to do something that not, not many other bands were doing, um which was, you know, creating melodies and stuff. But, you know, it's all sadly now uh confined to the uh, annals of history. Because i would say, it just, yeah, I mean, uh, when the dance culture came along, um, that was it, really. I think that kind of drew a line under that period.
0: Yeah, and there were
1: some, you know,
0: there some very good. So, with your output, you know, you started. Your first was a cassette, wasn't it? The the early direct hits, which was just um yeah, and then Blow Up was the album which came out on Wham
1: Records. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we um that 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 came about eventually because we pushed and pushed, and they did that modesty play single, which was um you know it got good reviews. So uh, the trouble with Dan and the whole WAN thing was that they never had any money to really do anything. So after we did Modesty Blades we kind of expected that we might go and make an album, you know, as a big thing. And then they didn't have the money to finance it. and We could barely do another single. So that's how we, um, we kind of uh, clubbed in and went to a little studio. And uh, that's where we just put all the songs down on tape and then tried to sort of pump it around. But eventually um wayne records stumped up the money to make our first album and i mean um what did happen probably the most momentous occasion there was when we was recording blow up there was these three um blokes that used to fill in studio time they kind of lived at the studio which is in south london and uh, we was always kind of a you know if we didn't one of us didn't turn up they used to use the time and sometimes they would sleep in the studio itself or uh you know, and that was around all the time, and we kind of stepped over them. And uh, so I said to the engineer, I said, you know, "I said there are these three blokes anyway." So he said, well, he said, "Somebody's put a lot of money into them." <clears throat> anyway, I didn't. He played me what they did. I didn't really like it much. But anyway, that was a ha.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that they come, yeah. You know, they had been planted by Warner's to. Um, I don't know. Just go to the studio and. Uh, they kind of gave him a little bit of money, I think, and they sort of imported them. And then years later, there's the very band that we was stepping over in the studio, sleeping on the floor, and you used to move them out of the way, you know, because it was a bit of a pain, really. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> it was obviously, uh, you know, going to do something with them.
0: Yes. Well, that's, that, 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 that's, <laughs> that's kind of. humble beginnings, isn't it? That was very humble beginnings. And uh, I mean, were you yeah. kind of, you know, after you did blow up, I mean, did it sell at all or was it did because at the time you yeah, had
1: you never really knew. Pardon? You never really knew what happened to it. Because <coughs> yeah. um they, they um there was no communication so you you know you would get a statement from them. You didn't really know how many they pressed. You didn't really have a lot of knowledge of that. I mean we signed a deal with um wham uh, <clears throat> a songwriting that we had before that. And Tina and myself, we, we signed with Twist and Shout Music uh, some years before that. And our job was uh, to write songs for people. But, I mean, uh, you know, we never really used to get much into our statements and stuff. Um, there was no real deals. No. Um, we signed these contracts and there wasn't anything in it, you know. We had no idea what we were signed for. I mean, my one my, my regret is that we don't own the recordings. If we have had enough money to stump out by the time... Um, it would have been great, but we didn't. Yes, this is bad, isn't it? Quite a lot of coughing in between.
0: There was well, no, that's fine. Um, that's um, as long yeah. as you haven't got COVID. out. Yeah.
1: Um, no. no. <laughs> I know. So it was just a
0: cough. Yeah, and luckily we're not in the same room. But I mean, because I don't really understand that you know the whole publishing ownership thing. So when you sign for Wham, you give them the master tapes and they do the business, and then. You just hope that one day you you see a royalty check, but you don't really have anything else.
1: No, no. At that time, um, it was even worse, actually, because had we have, um, I think what happened was Dan years later got into um, some problem. I mean, I know he had this drug problem, but um, when we knew him, he was terrified of drugs. I mean, I don't even know how that came about, um, because we used to play dingbats the tvps and um dan was pretty much anti all that stuff but um eventually i think he ended up selling the uh the master tapes um very cheaply uh possibly a twist and shout i don't really know but um that's my only regret because um the twist and shout or oh, fire records have never been they've never really done anything with the tapes so you know they were pretty much sitting there on uh um, you know, reel-to-reels, or I think, the, I think the second album we did, House of Secrets, was the first one that was done on videotape, which obviously made it a digital recording. Because up till then it was all um, reel-to-reels and splicing stuff together, you know. Yes. It took ages to do that.
0: Absolutely. But
1: um, yeah, I mean, I think that's my regret that we didn't pay for the recordings, because since um, you know, we've had a few offers from labels who would like to put that stuff out but they just want too much money for it oh right but the licensing of those tracks you know it's just horrendous it must have, i mean i think that whole album costs maybe 1500 quid blow up. but now you know if you want to license the tracks it's like you know it's just too much money so most indie labels can't do it so that's just the deal we ended up with very really.
0: I know because Fire Records seem to have got a lot of those indie bands from the eighties, don't they? I sort of from talking to various people, they see, oh yes, Fire's got them, and that's the end of that. Because yeah, it's kind of strange because Cherry Red Records are always obsessed with you know bringing stuff out, aren't they? And and basically you know releasing as much as possible. And um, yeah, it's strange really because there is
1: right. I mean, they've been really good. Yeah. Um... But, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a shame just because, um, you know, in, in Clive Solomon's defence, he um, he was pretty in the forefront of that. He had a, quite a lot of good ideas. And, uh, you know, he started that psychedelic revival kind of single-handedly and that group the the club, <clears throat> that whole thing that went with it. You know, it was great. Um, but like I'll say, uh, it, they never really did so much in the way of promotion and stuff. Um, I'm not really sure. I think it was back to distribution then. Who did the Smiths did the Rough Trade stuff? Um, and they, they were very much formative then. I think they got it together a bit better with Rough Trade, and uh, they got the, the distribution was always the thing, it wasn't so much making the records, it was getting it pressed and, and getting it out there. That was what there was a lack of then, I would say.
0: Yes, that's and it
1: was a real shame.
0: So, how did you? Because, yeah, because then the 1000 Violins, I think they were sort of staying at Dan's place during that time and sort of keeping Dan yeah. on his floor. And they, they sounded quite sort of a rock and roll indie band, really, from their lifestyle sort of habits. So it did sound quite sort of raucous at that point with um, various members.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when we, um, I mean, the other thing about Dan was, like I say, we, we got involved with um, uh, Pastel, um, the German record label. And they were, they, they, we did three tours with them. <clears throat> and you know that was great because we we'd never been out of England. We were uh, you know 26 or wherever we was at the time, and you know that was a whole new experience for us. <clears throat> so um, when we got there, I think Jesus and Mary Chain had been out the month before, and uh, because you were crossing um, East Germany, you you would go through the uh, to the East German sector. You know, <clears throat> your job as a British band then was to create some kind of a. Merry hell, you know. If you if you just went there and did nothing, you you know that wasn't up to it. The Germans actively encouraged that kind of bad behaviour, you know, <laughs> which was great. For everyone concerned, really. Yes. But Dan was huge. I mean, TVPs, you know, in Germany, they were really, you know, they, they would uh, ask us loads of questions about TVPs, you know. That's funny. <laughs> well, we had that slightly kind of arty thing as well, you know, because we some of our stuff was a little bit more psychedelic than most mod bands. We managed to kind of sneak into that. And it was a good thing we did, really. Yeah. Because um, um, Mod following was great, but it died out, really.
0: Yeah. Were well, you just, I mean, before ne- talking about the next album, but did you like bands like The Action? Were they kind of one of your go-to...?
1: Yeah, yeah. We we started out, we were kind of... Um, in fact, we went to the Quadrophenia thing because um, we're the we're guitarist in Battersea. That overlooked The Who's Ramport Studios. Um, uh, and we um, we were bunking off school then, I think. And I think they were making Quadrophenia at that studio at the time. And we kind of got into that. We used to see them, The Who arrive and uh, finish recording the stuff. And when they shot that album cover, you know, the, the original Quadrophenia album over uh, the booklet, yeah. that's all shot in Battersea. So we kind of got into that The, the Who thing and the mod thing even about that about seventy three, something like that, when quadrophenia came out. And then of course shortly after that, that kind of exploded and that's what led to the modern revival thing. But yeah, we were into that stuff a long time, really. Small faces we used to we used to like I mean much like the Pistols were as well. You know, they used to do small faces covers. We um yeah, we, we come up on that same kind of boat, I suppose. And then it kind of took off. Yeah. But we never really associated with a band with that until a little bit later. So, yeah, yeah I mean, um, you know, we, we um, did that lifestyle for quite a while, really. <clears throat> and the fans were great, you know. They would, they would come to as many gigs as they could and there was really a good crowd to play for. But it, it just got a little bit one-dimensional. So when
0: so, uh, you so know, when you were doing that...
1: The Psychedelic Dog was great.
0: So when you were doing the second album, The House of Secrets... This was yeah. kind of, um, you did this one in Croydon, didn't you? With Dave Goodman. Yeah. I mean, did that, um, were you still, enthusiasm? was, was the sort of the band, you know, did you still have great enthusiasm for the band at that stage?
1: Yeah, I think, I think we did. I think the only trouble with the House of Secrets is, although I think the songs are, are okay, you know, I think they, they stand up okay, but, um, we kind of, um, that was when we kind of leaked into the Beatles stuff a lot more because, uh, I was coming from that side more, whereas uh, Gino, he um, was much more of a Who fan. So that's how our song line evolved, really, into a mix of the two. So when we come to the House of Secrets, Dave Goodman, who had produced the first Pistols sessions, um, he was a real kind of psychedelic and he he was convinced that, you know, there was nothing before Revolver. Revolver and and Rubber Soul was his whole, he lived his whole recording life by that. (laughs) So, you know, we started making that and then eventually we we just morphed so much into that we were you know, he's going, Oh, you know, this is gonna be great, you know, because these songs are, you know, they're pretty much what the Beatles could have written and, and then we started to um I think there's too much uh revolver on that record. I think it just got some of our ideas got a little bit overtaken. <laughs> but um, I think it's okay, you know, I think um like any underfunded, underproduced record probably really from that period. I think it stands
0: up. Yes. Yeah, I think it's okay. Yes. But yeah, I mean, we had a we
1: had a fan base enough to sell enough records to do it. Yeah. But it was kind of on the wane by
0: then. I would say. Well, yeah. I mean, it's I think by
1: it.
0: it's kind of I kind of remember that period kind of quite well because I suppose by then, you know, as a fan, you know, you you have been obsessed and and then sort of bands like, that you loved start splitting up and then you start having to. Get other things together in your life, and and sort of music still means a huge amount. But you know, you realise that that you have a certain stamina for these kind of things. I suppose we were sort of <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. You, you kind of get. You know, I
0: suppose I started getting kind of excited with some of the dance stuff and that Italian house stuff. But then there was grunge that started. Yeah, as you naturally,
1: as you naturally would. Yeah, yeah. I think we were so um, uh, we were so orientated into that 60s stuff. You know that um, yeah, that time had passed really. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was. I mean, you know, it's like anything. Looking back, um, yeah, I don't think it was a lot. Probably a lot more, a lot bigger than what we thought at the time. Because it didn't. Um, we couldn't get fan mail, or we, you know, we didn't get a lot of feedback.
0: Yeah. So um,
1: it's only since, when I've, you know, people have sent, sent us kind of stories and stuff about um, how they went to these gigs and uh, the preamble to it, you know when all these kids turned up on scooters, you know, that was great. You know, I found out that they, you know, they were pretty big fans. They knew all the stuff, you know. That's the other thing, you know, I didn't realise that, uh, you know, so many people knew your songs, you know, and that was, that was really good <clears throat> because I felt that, you know, it was achieved a little bit of something, not too much, but no, a little bit of something.
0: Just a little bit. Did you, um, so did the band break up after that kind of period? That the the sort Yeah, of... we,
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, they did that Mod Aid Day, and I think we the first one was really good. Uh, I think we did a second one, which wasn't so good. I think that was at Wimbledon Town Hall. Um, I don't think there was as many kids there. Um, so we yeah we did that, <clears throat> and then we kind of called it a day until we got another call from Germany to put to do another tour. So we went back in '87, I think it was, did another tour and. Um, you know, that was reasonably successful, but I remember coming back from that. I mean, more or less split up. Then that was it. That was yeah. the end. Nothing left to do, really. Yes, there was no crowd, as such.
0: There was nothing. So then, so you get on with your life, and the band just kind of goes into hibernation. So then, what's the next moment that happens?
1: Well, I um, I still, uh, I kind of had a little covers band that was playing for quite a while, and then um, I got a call from another German company who um. They wanted to, to know what I was doing. And I'd already had a, a form of another little band in, This Happy Breed. And then we went into um, the, the German, German contingent. They put us into a studio, <clears throat> which was um, Toe Rag Studios in Shoreditch. Now, they'd only just started, and they had this kind of wacky... The Germans love this stuff because they had this kind of wacky approach to it. And um, they went... The story is that they, they went to Abbey Road, and they dug out all the um, equipment that was in the skip outside. This was when EMI went digital. So they threw all those things that were like washing machines, you know, with the big control knobs um, and the uh, reverb chambers, you know, which were like gold, like solid gold, you know, particularly to uh, the German contingent who knew knew all about Studio 2, Abbey Road, you know. So this bloke, Liam... He went there in a band and he picked all the stuff up and he set up a studio with it in. So it was an analogue recording studio. And we went there. They they, they said that we we want you to make uh, an album, you know, if you've got songs, songs knocking around. So we went in and did that. And I've got a different drummer and a different bass player. And I'd never played guitar in a band before, the only bass. So we did that. And then, of course, that studio, well, everyone uses that now. Um, I know the, the Stripes. The white stripes, um, they was mad on it, and mm-hmm. and uh, the stripes as well. Actually, more recently, yes. <clears throat> So that was really good. It was a really good place because they they really played the part. They had um, a mellotron in there, and some seventies synthesizers, and they wore white coats and glasses with with plain lenses in them. <laughs> it was kind of really oddball, but they had everything. They had a box Continental, uh, they had a, a box keyboard. You know, and um, some really old blokes used to come in to ma- maintain these these um, consoles, you know. Blimey. I mean, it was great. It's quite novel. And they did have a fantastic... They had a plate reverb, you know, which is kind of binned about the end of the 60s, I think. But he had a real great vision, that bloke. So, was, you know, there's always people who want to use that equipment. What was his so, name? I think his name was um, uh, Lee... I think, uh, it's on the back of the record anyway. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe Ed Deegan was one of them. I think he was one of the partners. But if you look at the white stripes of where they recorded, yeah, they used to use that. Toe Rag Studios, well, you know, in indie circles, it's, it's um, revered. Yes.
0: Well, yeah, yeah.
1: It was a good place. If, if a little bit slow in, um, I think we did some battle guitar and it took ages because they'd take the tape off, turn it around. And, you know, everything took ages <laughs> because, you know, the machines used to overheat. And stuff like that. <laughs> Excellent. But, you know, it was kind of genius in a way.
0: Yes, absolutely. And then with the, with your, <clears throat> with the, you know, with, with the band, that was with, obviously, the Happy Breed. Did you just kind of let, kind of... Yeah, actually, that was my credit. <laughs> my credit went down. But look, yeah. So, so then, just coming back to the to, to the current kind of um, yeah, the compilation. So this is called the Broadway recording session. So what? How? Did, what is this?
1: Well, it's last night. Was, um, it was it was in two in Broadway this year. That's why it got the name. There's nothing elaborate about it. It wasn't in mainstream New York. <laughs> it was um, no. It was uh, these are just um, recordings. Uh, the the kind of pre blow up period because we these were songs we were we were writing and playing at the time Kind of more or less our stage act really and then um, we just went in and did it in a day and I think we went back once to do a bit of mixing but it it was really just a matter of putting everything down live we just played live we did a few overdubs it was everything we could afford really yes it was maybe a day and a half <clears throat> just to punt around and try and get a deal so. I had those tapes and fortunately you know they belonged to us we paid for them so there was nobody to ring up and say can we use this and a uh, licensing cost etc etc um so it was the only thing i had really that i thought was you know deemed if anyone was interested to put it out is what we'd like to do really so yeah i mean you know they, they remastered really it they went to um a studio that, that still um, remasters for vinyl you know which I didn't know there was that much difference between that and cds but apparently there is to do with frequencies and bass end and all the rest of it but they yeah they sent me a test press in because I think it's due out next month and uh it sounded great it was 180 gram vinyl it, it just sounded great you know
0: mm. well that's brilliant so and that's you, what it is yeah God, and you've it's, had that now 40 nearly 40 years yeah
1: yeah it's been gathering dust uh, on my top shelf here in the studio, a little studio I've got, so I um, I dusted it off and uh, managed to, uh, I've still got a, a quarter-inch tape machine, you know, like I suppose anyone from that period, I started this little reel-to-reel and, um, yeah, it okay, you know, there was nothing wrong with the recording, so um, I sent it to them and they, they did the rest, but they've been great, I mean, they did the VIPs as well, we were, you know, we also quite, Big fans or the VIP, so they did their one as well. And um, you know, we never had a budget as such. You know, now we've got a gatefold sleeve with um, picture inserts. It's not the same spec as the white album, I'd say. Yes, that yeah, you mean... know, and that's that's them. Never keen on that, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know. I mean, he he's an amazing chap who put, who does all this work because it must be a real labour of love. But um, it must be nice. And does that mean that you and the other members of the band have, I'm not talking about reforming, but, you know, has it been quite a nice journey to sort of be able to sort of listen to this again and see the finished I- item and and sort of reconnect with your fellow musicians?
1: Well, I mean, um, you yeah, know, the funny thing is that the guitarist to, uh, Jayna, who, know, uh, who, we, we was in a band together, you know. We did this power pop thing, and we was dead serious about what we were doing. And then he, um, he actually, um, uh, he kind of, he was. I think he was watching TV one day, and he heard uh, Leon Redbone on. I think it was a British Rail advert. And it was always a little bit like that. Like when when we did the smog thing, he, he, he's the sort of bloke who would immediately throw everything else out, like his he, T Rex albums. The minute he got into the, the small faces and that thing, you know, he was dedicated to that stuff, 100%. So I went around his house like a week later, and everything from his rail collection that was there before had gone, and this is all he had um, in the in his record rack at home. He, he just And then he had uh, he had this Paul Weller haircut before Paul Weller had it, and then he would only wear those clothes, you know. So that's how we kind of, he was a lot more extreme about stuff. And years later, the same thing happened about um, when he got into pre-war blues. He just didn't play uh, electric guitar anymore. Um, and uh, he started doing gigs solo. Um, and he, he had the gear, he had the spats, he had uh, the trilby. Everything, the braces, you know, everything was all authentic like that. And that's how he always was, he was always like that. <laughs> uh, you know, he never done it properly. In fact, he's the only person I know, I think, who never wore any other type of jeans other than 501s. I think even to this day, he's never put on another pair of jeans, It's pretty rare, really, isn't it?
0: God, that is weird, <laughs> yes. He's very extreme. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so that's how he is. And uh, he, he kind of turned on to that music. And, uh, you know, as a lot of people find now, a lot of people, a lot of bands in the 60s, they kind of went back to this purist music. So, you know, like he he's only got he bought he's got about maybe twenty five collection of Parlour guitars. So he only plays, you know and then uh, in the early two thousands we got um a call to play that international pop overthrow festival at a cavern. So me being a message, people saying, I thought, you know, we've got to do this. And I called him and I said, Look, like, you know, do you wanna do this? But he actually told me that he could no longer play that kind of guitar. <laughs> he just couldn't go back to play um, electric guitar or rock and rock guitar whatever you call it you know um, and that's that's how he was and he's kind of been on that ever since so the last couple of years he digressed a little bit he, all the sort of mania stuff you know yeah, I'll talk to him one week and it'll be surfing music and then that's all he plays you know so that, that's how he was so I could never get him back to do any any gigs because he told me that he just you know his heart wasn't in that he wow. didn't feel that stuff yeah so um and the drummer uh mysteriously disappeared um a few years ago. And uh, he was uh, one of the first plates I knew he knew about technology, he had a Facebook page before anyone I knew or anyone knew what it was. So it's not as if he wasn't uh tech savvy. He just disappeared. I don't know what happened, he had a few unsavoury things said about him from some people that knew him. And um he doesn't know anything about this kind of revival since so he really is on the missing list you know like normally these days you can find someone yes there's, there's always some sort of footprint somewhere
0: yes. there is the footprint yeah it could be dead
1: that's all I know but um so I couldn't get him either so um I did um I did a gig in 2018 in a pub in Kent because so they were struggling a bit and I thought well, who can I get that might get a crowd so I did one then I got my um, son to play guitar because he'd grown up with it so he knew all uh, you know, the quite stuff inside and out, so got another drummer, a happy bree drummer, and then um got Andy from mood six to play bass, so we did a gig there, actually fly me uh, three years back
0: God damn, God damn, well, look, actually, I'm gonna have to go in a bit because I've got someone at three um four, but just last question then I mean, if you could have said something like, this is one of those boring questions. I used to like this question now I'm getting a bit te bored of it myself, but <laughs> <laughs> I always ask it just in case um. We once you've done something for long enough, you just think, oh, I should keep... If you could have said something to an 18-year-old self with all the kind of wisdom that you've had, or experience at least, you know, well, yeah, experience kind of often equates to some sort of wisdom. What would you, what, what would you have said to that person?
1: Well, um, what I would have said is not really applicable anymore because it doesn't ham like that. But I would say um, make sure you own your own, your own your own recordings yes I because anyone for the years who's done that has been successful you know uh, even the day part five, Oh my god know,
0: well he's been really successful yeah, anyone
1: yes yeah anyone keeps their own recordings don't sign anything without getting looked over but it doesn't come up now because nothing's left a chance
0: yeah
1: like it was then you know
0: it was all a bit passive, wasn't it? But yeah. Oh look, Colin, this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for this. I'm, I'm glad we've got time together for that. But yeah, and I've loved, you know, listen to this kind of recording. I've, I'm, you know, and your other work actually is on Spotify, which probably doesn't bring you any happiness. But at least people can listen to no. it. No, <clears throat> no, I mean it's out
1: there. You know, can not really think about it. But no, it's been good.
0: It's been great. Yeah. Well look, look, I'm better go. But look, thank you ever so much. And and if you want, I can always send you the this link um for the, the interview and then you can always use it on that uh, website you've got. Yeah. If you want, I don't know. Sometime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Okay. Right. But look, thanks a lot. Have a lovely day and hopefully this year we'll sail through it and we'll all be happy at the end of it. Who knows?
1: It's yeah, true. that's so
0: yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. At least all right. take care. See you later. Bye. Yeah, right, bye. There you go, how to end an interview with great panache. Anyway, that was it. Hopefully you're still listening if you are. Well done if you're not. Well, then, whatever. Um, Yes, that was me in conversation with Colin Swan, a member of Direct Hits, whose new compilation collection is going to be coming out at the end of February, I do believe. This is called the Broadway Recording Sessions, and this is on Optic Nerve Records, all the way from Preston. So um, do check it out, buy it. And they'll love you even more. It uh, does sound brilliant. I have heard the MP3s. I haven't got the vinyl. I do believe there's going to be 500 blue vinyl copies of that for those who love it and possibly else other things. But just go to Optic Nerve Records or um, just Google Direct Hits. Colin Swan, at least. Otherwise, you'll be... Your search will be hopeless. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do the C86 show. That's it. Uh, Keep it positive. And otherwise, uh, yeah, you can find all these interviews archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And there's a lot. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.